0: The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we focus on two big art events in Europe. Last weekend was Berlin Gallery Weekend, and Aslam Mohammed spoke to the event's curator, Micah Cruz, and to the artist Bernard Venet, whose show opened at Blaine Southern as part of the event. But first this week, the Venice Biennale. Next week is the preview week of the art world's biggest event, when pretty much the entire contemporary art world descends on Venice for a few days. At the heart of the Biennale is, of course, the main exhibition, held in the old Italian pavilion in the Giardini and the once mighty former shipyard for the Republic of Venice, the Arsenale. The artistic director this year is Ralph Rugoff, the director of London's Hayward Gallery, and he's chosen 79 artists for his exhibition, which he's titled May You Live in Interesting Times. We'll be reporting from the Biennale in a special podcast next week. But ahead of our visit, I spoke to Rugoff at the Italian Cultural Institute in London, just after he'd given a press conference on the Biennale and as he was putting the finishing touches to the show. Ralph, uh, let's begin by talking about the title. When did it come to you and what's its significance?
1: You know, I can't even remember anymore when the title came to me, but its I think what attracted me was, one, uh, I was thinking a lot about some of the more dreadful things happening politically in the last two or three years, and trying to think of a way not to create a an exhibition that would reflect in a depressing way on the times we live in. And this phrase, which I'd known since I was a child, popped to mind, and this may you live in interesting times, it seems to be kind of open-ended in what it might mean. You know, it's an invitation, or and it might be a way to frame an exhibition which hopefully is reflecting on this time, but to offer the possibility that you might find a perspective of living in this time where you could see this as an interesting time rather than a dangerous, hair-raising, horrific period of human history. Um, Then the fact that this was also a piece of fake news, as it were, that's been recycled over and over again over the past hundred years, that this was... Said to be an ancient Chinese curse, even though it never was, and everyone from pre-war politicians in the UK to Hillary Rodden Clinton, from Albert Camus to Arthur C. Clarke, have used this phrase, talking about it as an ancient Chinese curse. So the fact that we now live in a world where you can go online and find out in you know two minutes that there never was an ancient Chinese curse, I think, is brings up some very interesting issues that seem relevant to this
0: time. So the question is, to what extent are the artists directly engaging in this notion of fake news, in this idea of uh, alternative facts?
1: Some artists are engaging with it quite directly, I think. I, I don't want to say that this is an exhibition about fake news and alternative facts. Um, in fact, it's really an exhibition against the er- very idea that an exhibition might be about something, any more than a work of art might be for- about this or that. It's much more trying to present a strong sense of, you know, the complexity of works of art which generate many different kinds of associations that you have to work out for yourself, that um, have this conversation with an audience and which ultimately are posing questions. And that I hope, you know, for me that's the goal of this exhibition, is that it leaves people with some interesting questions that they can carry on to their experience afterwards. I mean this is very much an exhibition dedicated to the idea that the most important thing that happens doesn't happen inside the gallery it's what visitors do with that experience after they leave.
0: I suppose the most innovative idea is this idea of separating the Arsenale and the central pavilion in the Giardini into two separate exhibitions. Why did you do that?
1: Uh, for, for two reasons. One Uh, was to echo this idea of this kind of uh, social division that seems to have been exacerbated in our world where we have these very polarized societies. In the UK, obviously, uh, we have this division over Brexit with, in a way, two different countries existing side by side, seemingly living in parallel information landscapes. But also, it was a way really to call attention to the multiplicity of artistic practice, that interesting artists work in different ways, Um, their work straddles different categories in different ways and to create a sense that you're only seeing a part of a bigger picture when you come to an exhibition like this Um, and to really just shine a light on this aspect of art it's uh, the way it dwells in ambiguity, the way it embraces contradiction uh, at a moment when our information landscape seems to be growing ever narrower. I
0: I think this is a really important point because uh, we live in a time when the art media is prone to uh, pigeonhole artists or to reduce their practice to certain... to almost a kind of soundbite. And what you're saying here is that actually, artists actually have a license to go in any kind of direction they want. And here are, for each artist you're showing, two examples or two ways of working.
1: Absolutely, and that each one of those ways is also completely multiple. Um, And in a way, if you looked at it closely enough, kind of define any pigeonhole that we might normally try to squeeze it into. And um, yeah, there are kind of countless examples of how that works in the exhibition. I think that's the kind of work that's always excited me. And I think if I have a criteria for quality, in in terms of assessing works of art it's the levels of resonance that a work of art can generate in terms of uh sending you off on this journey where you're kind of following one slippage of meaning to another to another to another and it doesn't end and that is kind of a sublime experience Uh,
0: tell us about the experience of of working with the artists because it's it's I think it's really important again that you are working exclusively with living artists in the last Biennale for instance there were a lot of dead artists, I'd like to know why you chose not to include artists from the past.
1: I think Documenta also feature a lot of dead artists and I think it's become a curatorial fashion to kind of try to recuperate artists who've been forgotten or never gotten the attention they deserved which to me is a great museum project. You, it's about introducing people into the canon who should be there and aren't there. Um, of course, I love the disposability, and I know I'll get in trouble for using this word, of the biennale, that it's something that happens every two years. It's, you know, It's got a short fuse on it. It's something that can address this moment rather than having to address who deserves to be in the history books. And it was, you know, also just for me, uh, I mean, as a curator, curator, you have a lot more control when you're dealing with dead artists, obviously. Um, But it was a lot more interesting for me to be in a a dialogue with the artists I was working with. And all of whom uh, were incredibly excited about this idea of having opportunities to show two different types of work. And of course, we might expect that, (laughs) but um, nobody was complaining about it and uh, I think I think people actually really did enthusiastically get behind that idea
0: in the presentation you made a point of of pointing to the fact that there are lots of painters in the exhibition Uh, and you talked about how uh, painting is a kind of zombie that keeps coming back from its reported death tell us more about one what you perceive as what Keeps it vital and what is keeping, you know, particularly in relation to this show, but also, you know, what is is that zombie quality?
1: Well, you know, I think it's interesting when you get a medium that starts to seem quasi-obsolete and it, in a way, becomes a kind of slow technology, a technology, well, painting's always been more or less a, a, a slower way of processing information, say, than photographic. Technologies or digital technologies um, in terms of making images. Let's leave sculpture out of this for the time being. And uh, I think increasingly painting has become a place where artists reflect on the kind of status of image traffic in the world at large, whether that is happening online or on television or Hollywood uh, through news images. Even if an artist is making a self portrait it's always influenced by these other media. And I think they're also commenting on the way images today are so heavily mediated and end up circulating in all kinds of different platforms. We don't have a simple singular relationship to an image anymore. And and that's an interesting thing for a unique object, like a painting, to explore. It, It gives you, it's distanced enough from this phenomenon by its status that it allows you to look at that reality, I think, with the necessary, well, distance.
0: In your text about the exhibition, you write about, about foregrounding playfulness. The word playfulness is not something we can use about very many recent biennales. I don't mean Venice biennales, I mean biennials. What, what do you mean by playfulness?
1: Well, you know, I'm very interested in art that entertains me. I mean, you know, I, I don't think entertainment is a bad word. I don't think we should let it be co-opted completely by commercial, corporate produced media, television, Hollywood, whatever. I like the word entertain because it's, we also entertain ideas. And um, I think it's one of the powerful things that art can do is it puts us casts a spell on you, you know? It gets you engaged, involved. And to do that, it's playing with you. In some way, it's got to be able to play with your responses um, and get you interested in it. And because I really am a strong believer in the idea that interesting art works as a conversation and exchange with the viewer, that has to be a form of play, I think. You know, I talk a lot about this idea of art embracing contradiction. And I think the idea that you can be silly and serious, you can make a work of art that's sad and funny at the same time. Uh, that might be beautiful and ugly at the same time, that these are things to me that make interesting works of art because you can't resolve them in any facile way. You can't pigeonhole them. Your brain keeps trying to work out what is that relationship between these seemingly incompatible qualities and, and the feelings that are associated with them. So, you know, playful doesn't have to mean funny or light uh, sometimes things are seriously playful.
0: What that makes me think of is is the artist Mike Kelly, who I know has been an artist of tremendous importance to your worldview and your curating. Is Mike Kelly in your thoughts as a curator almost perennially? And you know,
1: Mike definitely is. Um, and I really, Mike was the person who set me up to curate the first show I ever curated. So Mike had this phrase "negative joy" for talking about what he thought was the social function of art—that it should provide both critical insight, but also pleasure. And to me, too many exhibitions seem to forget the second part of this idea. And I think it unnerves people, the idea that you might make an artwork about something that's a very depressing reality, but somehow that work also is gonna provide you with pleasure, right? That freaks us out from a moral point of view. How can we possibly take pleasure when people are suffering? And yet this is where art is different from journalism. And there's a really great piece in the show uh, by Lawrence Abu Hamdan called Walled on Walled. And one of the things it utilizes is some research that he was initially asked to do by Amnesty International to interview some survivors of a notorious prison in Syria that very few people actually ever survive. And he you know carried out this research he interviewed people amnesty international used it as part of a paper they produced but then he found himself with a lot of information that he'd come up with that he said newspapers weren't interested in it wasn't appropriate for what amnesty was doing but he found it fascinating material and he said that art really was the only form in which this kind of information could find a form um, that would allow him to ask questions that also had to do with questions about things like the nature of evidence, um, as well as the specific facts of these cases that he was looking at. Um, And so I like this idea that there's information in the world which won't fit into these other formats, which are much more black and white, but that art, because of its capacity for... accommodating ambiguity and allowing a kind of reflection to occur around the way some something's articulated was the home for this material so there's an interesting you know back and forth I think between artists who are making work about the things in the real world but whose work takes specific forms that assert how art is different from the texture of Facts and the way journalism reports them.
0: Another factor which tells me that you're a real exhibition maker is that you thought about the journey through the arsenale, which is you said in the in the press conference that it can feel like a bit of a march of death when it's just this endless long passage. You're going to break it up, but not through not with heavy walls, but with sort of you're talking about see through materials. tell me about that experience because again that seems to me to relate to the pleasure of seeing an exhibition we talk about pleasure you know venice is an exhausting experience and you you seem very conscious of that
1: no i am i mean you know i'm a funny person to be uh, curating a biennale because i generally find them to be very difficult experiences as a as a visitor um you know i think I've always been fairly sensitive to the impact that architecture has on artworks and the idea that artworks are actually very sensitive to the ways they're installed and what's around them. And working at the Hayward for the last 12 years has increased this appreciation for the impact uh, architecture has. In Venice, you couldn't have two more different spaces, a neoclassical building from the late 19th century and a former road-making factory that dates back to the 14th century, um, they already give every Venice Biennale a split personality in a sense. So it seemed better to address this consciously than not. I mean, the Arsenale is this long 300 meter narrow rectangle, feels a bit like the digestive passage and you (laughs) enter one end and you're spat out at the other. (laughs) And I wanted to break up that journey. I mean, usually because there are columns, rows of columns, that two of them, that run all the length of this 300 meters. Typically, people build walls running the length of the building. And to me, that ends up feeling a bit too close to an art fair where you're looking at, you know, you can look down this long corridor and there's art on either side. And it, you know, it's it's, you can see too much at once. So the way we've divided it up is with many sections that bisect this long rectangular space horizontally. And it'll be a bit more of a labyrinth. Um, I'm hoping that doesn't prove to be just as exhausting. It might, but uh, I think at least it'll allow you to focus better when you're looking at a work of art because you don't have 15 other artworks in the background.
0: You've talked about textual references or cornerstones. So you talked about a text by Bruno Latour, you talked about a text by um, Umberto Eco. I'm wondering about artistic cornerstones. You talked about Mike Kelly as a kind of general cornerstone, if you like, for your work. Uh, were, were there exhibitions past that, that you you have had in mind when thinking about this one?
1: I mean, in a funny way, when you, when you are asked to do this thing, the Venice Biennale, you do... End up reflecting on all the biennales you've been to, and it did make me think a lot about Francesco Bonami's biennale. I don't even remember the exact date anymore, but I think two thousand three. Two thousand three. Yeah, um, where he had nine co-curators. They each co each curated a separate section, and I remember at the time thinking it was completely incoherent and didn't add up to anything. But in, in retrospect. I think I find it more and more interesting because one, it really addressed the fact that, gee, one big exhibition is almost too large to take in, right? And how do you make a coherent connection between 100 or 150 different artists? And some of the smaller exhibitions that were part of that one Biennale were were really successful and were really interesting. Um, And in a way, I think that was the most radical experiment uh, in the Biennale's history. So perhaps that was uh, in the back of my mind.
0: Okay. well, Ralph, thank you so much for talking to us.
1: All right. Thank you, Ben.
0: May you live in interesting times, and most of the Venice Biennale events take place between the 11th of May and the 24th of November. As I said, next week's podcast will be coming to you from Venice and you can read all about the Biennale in a special report in the current print edition of The Art Newspaper and online at theartnewspaper.com. We'll be back and heading for Berlin after this. The great 20th century Italian sculptor Marino Marini was in his mid-30s when, in 1938, he began to explore the theme of horse and rider. It was to prove a career-defining move. Initially rooted in the rich Western tradition of equestrian art, Marini's figures became more stylized and abstract over time. It reflected the artist's own darkening mood of anguish, especially in the post-war years of social and political instability in Italy. Studio per Miracolo, offered at Bonham's Impressionist and Modern Art sale in New York in May, was conceived in the early 1950s and it's invested with a new dynamism and emotional intensity. As Bonham's head of Impressionist and Modern Art in America, Caitlin Pickens, explained, the depiction of a rider thrown backward on a falling horse exemplifies not only the fragility of human life, but also Marini's sense of impending catastrophe. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, Berlin's annual Gallery Weekend returned for its 15th edition last weekend, with 45 galleries across the German capital opening new shows. Ahead of its launch last week, a grassroots social media campaign called Soupe du Jour, headed by the artist Candice Brights, accused the event of a gross gender imbalance within the exhibitions promoted by its programme. Arslan Mohammed spoke to Micah Cruz, the director of the Weekend, about the campaign and much more, and you'll hear that shortly. But first, one of those 45 exhibitions that opened last weekend is at the Blaine Southern Gallery, a new show by the French artist Bernard Vernet. Arslan went to the gallery to talk to him. Bernard, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Your career has seen you move uh, through intense geometrical, exact empirical formulas. You've worked with reliefs in the past and then reliefs have kind of evolved into sculpture. Is that a kind of accurate Brief précis of how the direction your career has moved in, or, yeah. or have things kind of gone
3: more chaotically? I have a way to work which is uh, like this, you know, I can I do something, like I started to do reliefs in 1963 yes, Uh, and then uh, I stopped, I went into a little bit of sculpture, then I go into painting or photography or whatever, then one day I have a new idea about relief and I just go back and uh, if I think that it's uh, interesting enough, I just jump on it and I do it. Uh, More in the last, uh, let's say, 10 years ago or even 15, I started to develop reliefs a lot. By doing indeterminate areas, you know, some very uh, heavy uh, reliefs, which are about, uh, some of them are like five, six tons, you know. Um, And then what I call the grips, they are very dynamic gestural uh, 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 pieces cut on uh, steel plates. Uh, They also weight a lot of, uh, you know, weight a lot. Um, And then I stopped going back to the sculpture, going back to the paintings, and then suddenly I had a new idea recently. I was just, uh, I remember, I was in my studio looking at a very early uh, drawing that I made in 1967, very much involved with scientific uh, information, but I saw a line that was so simple, you know, like just uh, a line, you know, nothing dynamic, no spiral, nothing at all, and I thought, gee, how about doing that? And uh, of course, two weeks later, I had about uh, 10 or 12 or 15 pieces on my wall, you know, six, seven meters long. That's how I work. What keeps
2: bringing you back to that? I mean, here you are, you've had this wonderful career uh, spanning 50 years, yet you still seem to be very much committed and obsessed by these mm. forms. What, what is it that keeps motivating you to explore more, to, do, to discover more and experiment more?
3: I'm obsessed by two things. One of them is that I'm convinced that I have not done enough. There is so much to create, you know. There is so much to do. And uh, uh, yes, you get to a certain point where you have a certain success, and people think that you are doing well. Yes, we are doing well, but how many are we to do well, you know? And we we don't want to compare ourselves to our friends. We just want to compare ourselves to Picasso, Leonardo da Vinci. You know, I mean, it's we that want to high. do yes. But you see, I'm not doing art to make money. I'm not doing art to satisfy. My I needs to do art. I'm doing art because I hope that one day in the future, you know, people will look at my work and say, my God, look what he did in those days, you know. uh, It it has to become something culturally determinant. Otherwise, it's not worth doing art. Let me just say this to you. You know that Cézanne one day said that if I knew for sure that my work will never be at the Louvre, I will stop instantly. And I feel the same. If the, the goal is not to be famous because you are at the Louvre, no, no, no. The goal is to do something which has really, which is meaningful, which is really going to uh, be determinant for the field of art history. Do you feel that you will reach a plateau, a point where
2: you've, you think I have achieved all I can do with this form, with this approach, and
3: might want to wish to do something else? No. I stop you right away. I haven't done <laughs> I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. There is so much more that I can do. And uh, honestly, the very last pieces that I'm doing, if you come to the South of France at the foundation and you see my last effondrement meaning collapse, you know, where now I'm making sculptures which are not controlled by me. You know, I don't improvise and control. No, I just let nature, uh, gravity make the work itself. And uh, and if you see that piece, you will see that it's better than anything I did before and I really intend to keep on going like this today my luck is that I have uh, fortunately the financial means to do whatever I think it's only my imagination which is uh, you know weak compared to the possibility to do things so so I have no excuse if I have a good idea if I have something which is worth doing I have to do it and there is so much I will do it yeah
2: you mentioned just now your foundation in the south of France which I believe opened five years ago
3: Yes, five years yeah, ago. 2014. Exactly.
2: Yeah. How has that experience been for you? It's a very rare thing to have, uh, first to be able to show pretty much all your collection of work which you've collected over the years from many, many illustrious friends, many, many artists we don't know as well. You know, It's a wonderful mix of works. Mm. And based around this building, which you renovated and uh, created, how has that been for you as a working artist to also be... Uh, the director of this foundation
3: and what is the ambition of the foundation it's a big subject The first thing is uh, is that I want to make an homage to those artists whom I knew, who were older than me, like uh, the minimalists mainly, the Robert Morris, the Carl Andre, the Flavin, the Donald Judd, and Solowit mainly also. Those people who were very nice to me, and they helped me to exhibit with them. While I was very young, I was like 26 years old, and uh, they helped me to exhibit at Duane Gallery, Leo Castelli, uh, Paula Cooper. So it's a way to make an homage to them. Another thing is that... I don't understand what people do with the money when they start to make money. What do you do with it? Do you go into drugs, into, lady, into women? Do you go into buying anything, spending Something. your money? You go and play at the casino. <laughs> Myself, I, I think that um, I have a duty. I'm, I'm fortunately my art is helping me to live relatively well. The extra money I have, I should just bring it back to art now on one side by making the pieces that I want to make about my, uh, for me, but also buying art because it's the best thing you can do. I mean, how can you uh, sell an artwork that you love and and instead of that you get what? Some stuff which are going to be meaningless? You know, no, no, you want to do something rich with it. Now, that's one thing. The second is that this place in the south of France, um, Le Mui, you know, in Le Mui, in, uh, in Le Var uh, area, is fortunately extremely beautiful. The nature is amazing. I have a river, a waterfall, and everything. The landscape is green. It's all. It's like unique, you know. Um, and uh, then I have this incredible collection. Yes, thanks to my friend, not to me. I mean, it's thanks to them um, because they they are very nice and they give me some good prices a lot of the time. But also, I exchange a lot with Larry Bell, Sol LeWitt, with uh, many many artists.
2: I read you've done this a lot over the years. You, you, yes, you rather, always
3: rather than buying, you exchange. See, Since I was 22, I've been collecting by exchanging with artists. But you see, this is the most important thing I want to say. One day I'm going to die. Apparently, everybody, it happens to everybody, you know. uh, And uh, and that day, my kids, my two sons are going to, and my wife, are going to have to sell so much in order to pay for taxes. And I talked to my wife, I talked to my sons, and I said, Look, you know what? How about giving everything to a foundation. It won't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me anymore. We give everything. And like that that what I did will remain, it will, be, it will last, you know, for a long, forever. I mean, ideally, ever doesn't exist, but, uh, but it will be there. You will be able to enjoy it, show it to your friend, it will be our story. And it's actually, it's really thanks to you that we can do that. Not thanks to me, yes, I acquired all those things, but if you agree with me, uh, you are the people that we are supposed to, to, uh, to thank. One more reason is that, You see, I was born very poor, okay, in a family that was, you have no idea. And because of that, because of the fact that I've been living in a society, in a social context, that helped me to develop myself, to uh, end up being an artist, you know, uh, having a good life, uh, meeting the right people at the right place, traveling all around the world, acquiring all those artworks. I owe it to the society, So my goal is to give it back to the society. You know, I'm not going to to leave the world with all of those artworks. No, it has to be given back to to the people to whom it belongs. So this is what we do. My kids understand that, my wife also. So we all agree. Absolutely. Do you uh,
2: still acquire art by uh, younger artists, emerging artists? Are there any in particular that you are especially
3: uh, interested in and find particularly good? Unfortunately, I do not have an eye for the younger artist, no as much as I was very good in 1970, 71, uh, you know, knowing that uh, Flavin, Judd, Andre, in 68, I knew already, you know, very early. It was because it was my family. You see, those people were doing a a very cold abstraction, very close to what I had been doing also. They were better than me because they were doing it in a more radical way, but I found my way to go beyond all that after. Uh, But, um, I, this this was my my family and I understood that period very very well and very quickly. So I knew exactly who to acquire as soon as I was getting some money and I got some flavin for one thousand dollar and I'm talking about the the the, the, the tube which is uh, from nineteen sixty three the very first he made. You know, oh, I'm talking yeah. about Donald Judd for three thousand a piece, which is five meters long. So. I could, because they were my friends. We had the same interests, you know, Robert Morris, Walter de Maria, all those people. uh, I mean, I was thinking also about about Robert Smithson. These were friends. So acquiring the work was easy. Now, I have to confess that today I'm totally blind. I do not understand you know, who are the good artists. I just don't have the eye for it. And I remember talking with some very sophisticated art historians uh, who belong to my generation. And I said to them, okay, it's your, it's your... Uh, duty to work on that, to understand, to uh, you know, to end your work, to appreciate and talk about it. What do you think? You see, we are lost. We don't understand. You see, we have to be close to a generation in order to completely understand. Uh, it's very difficult to keep on going like this. So my collection is purely uh, the the minimalist and conceptual art. A few exceptions, but they are even older, like uh, Robert Morris, uh, like uh, uh, Mo Motherwell or Frank Stella. You know, and uh, do you have a chapel? Of by Frank Stella, Stella, by, by yes. Frank Stella yes. yes. Oh, that's a beautiful story. You know, one day I was in his studio. He's a very good friend for many, many years. I met him. I met him when I arrived in New York in '66. Mm. But it took a long time before I have uh, this kind of relationship. Um, uh, But one day I was in his studio and I saw those six huge reliefs, you know, uh, very much of the same type. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like, uh, like, uh, it doesn't look like that, but it reminds me of the uh, the Rothko Rothko chapel, Chapel, you know. So I thought, how about making a chapel with that? It would be fabulous. (laughs) But then I thought, no, too expensive. And then uh, after a while, I just uh, uh, said to Frank, Frank, you know, how about and I give a number I won't tell you it's crazy totally <laughs> crazy for me it was like beyond anything and he looked at me and said oh Bernard come on no 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 not, not possible he said what he says and he added 40% oh my god you know it was too much so but he said you know what you do Bernard you take them bring them to the the south of France, you pay me when you can. And this is what I did. And at the end, I could still not pay. And at the end, he said, give me a piece, okay?" And we forget about (laughs) it, yeah. Thanks, Frank. Yes, (laughs) thanks, Frank. Oh, he has been wonderful.
2: Was Was there a particular highlight of the weekend? Was there a moment that you particularly enjoyed or any one aspect that really made you pleased?
4: Well, I mean, for me, the best is always the gallery tour, obviously. I mean, it's the nice part of my job is uh, during gallery weekend when I am supposed to visit all the 45 galleries and I have a car taking me around and I have three days for this. So it's in a very fast rhythm that I do 45 shows and I think every year it's so great that it's the shows are so diverse and you see... Um, New artists that I didn't know before so well, like Frida Toranzo Jäger or Rafaela Vogel, Falt-Laurence Kurz. Uh, there was a fantastic show of Jana Euler. That was really great. And then of yeah, course to totally see.
2: Like
4: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it's a it's a fantastic presentation. And um, and then uh, you see all the evergreens like Ryan Gander, you know Daniel Knorr. Um, and then older artists, more established artists, or artists who are even mentors for younger artists, like Thomas Bayerle, Bernard Venet. Um, and, and, then, and then what I really liked was a few discoveries I made of artists that I didn't know before, like the Korean artist Barbara Wien, that was almost like a retrospective, uh, and also Doria Hamian at uh, Plan B. Uh, also kind of a respect retrospective of a romanian artist that i whose practice i wasn't uh, i didn't know so well before that
2: how do you think it's impacted the art of berlin how do you think when you look back at the last 5 years of your involvement mm-hmm. how do you see the gallery weekend having worked
4: mm-hmm. well it's I mean, when I took over, I took over from the the galleries themselves who own it and organized it back then, and then they decided it became too big. they need somebody to work on it and we did we did several things in the last years we worked very closely with the galleries we got in sponsors we are having a very close v i p program now and um so it's establishing itself more and more it's um, becoming much better visited every year lots of people know it but also the contacts of the galleries grow through shows like in Hong Kong many of them now have Asian contacts who they bring over together a weekend so the group of people coming grows but we have um, All time fans. There's a lot of international collectors who love it so much. They've been coming since the beginning. And um, so we have a very uh, close fan base that's coming every year. And um, yeah, but it's becoming bigger, bigger and bigger every year. Also, um, not, con- not only concerning us and the f- official program, but everything that's happening around us. The whole Berlin is participating and profiting from it.
2: When you say participating, I mean, obviously one of the features of Gallery Weekend is that it's a selection that you make, that mm-hmm. Gallery Weekend makes. Yes. Um, and obviously not every gallery is part of that. Do you feel that as you evolve that this selection procedure or curated procedure, however you wish to call it, is going to evolve as well? Do you think that there's going to be more opportunities? I'm thinking now many of the younger galleries mm-hmm. who are coming into Berlin. You know, yes. like we have this new generation of, you know, millennial dealers. Mm. And sort of. How do you think Gallery Weekend can evolve to meet their needs?
4: Well, we are, ta- I mean, it's all about Berlin galleries, so obviously I know them all personally. We talk a lot. We have a lot of roundtables with the galleries discussing our topics. And I'm visiting all the young galleries as well. So I know them and I'm in close conversations with a few of them if they want to join Gallery Weekend in the next years, when is the right point to step in so we don't have a application process which is also due to the fact that we have very small structure we don't have a budget so we don't have a committee and all these kind of things but we are in close contact and we include gal- like young galleries almost every year so it's it's a moving gallery list also this year there was five galleries that stepped down, most of them only for one year, and six galleries came back instead. So there's always a few galleries that um, that uh, where there's a fluctuation.
2: Because obviously it's, you know, over the last 12 months since the last gallery, we've seen a couple of galleries, either reconfigure, like Kroner or Alex Tover, mm-hmm. or we've seen one closer, Almein Rex. There are always challenges to the gallery scenes, whether you're in Berlin, London, yeah. or New York. And I'm wondering how much how much attention do you as Gallery Weekend pay to these fluctuations and these changes and kind of fold that into your policy? Mm-hmm. Is it something that you think, well this happens, it's you know, it's not our concern? Or do you feel well, you know, we want to maybe offer more support or encouragement to younger galleries?
4: Well, it's absolutely our concern. I mean, Gallery Weekend is a company owned by galleries and it's, a, it's an event for, for, from galleries for galleries. It's an event that's non-for-profit. We, our aim is to support the gallery scene and the local art market and not to earn money ourselves or anything. So this is our biggest concern. How are the galleries, how are the smaller and the younger galleries evolving? What are their problems? And as I said, we have a lot of round tables here at this table with participating galleries, but also with young galleries, seeing how we can help them. For example, this year we lowered the participation fee from 7,500 to 5,000 because some of the smaller galleries asked us to, which, uh, in the consequence, meant that we um, didn't do a few things. We we invited our guests per email instead of cards and so on, and um, but but still we took uh, we took care that it uh, has the same effect. And we are thinking a lot about these concerns. That's basically what we are most thinking about. How can we support the the Berlin galleries and. Um, the galleries that closed in the last year, that's, of course, a real big problem because most of them had fantastic programs, supported great artists, also a lot of Berlin artists, who don't really are not really presented anymore. This is a real problem for the whole city.
2: So as a result of these concerns, as a result of the roundtable discussions that you've been doing, mm-hmm. as a result of the initiatives to lower the admissions rate, how do you see, perhaps, Gallery Weekend looking forward to 2020? in this regard? Is there there any kind of concrete strategy in place or anything that you are thinking about now which could be implemented next year?
4: Well, what we do is is very simple. We try to make the best event for the galleries possible, which means that we bring excellent people to Berlin that... uh, buy art from them that maybe come back. We have very close contacts with them. We do a lot of PR for them. And we have a second event in September at Berlin where we again get in these people. And Gallery Weekend commercially was so successful for the participating galleries that this was already great support. Also, by the way, for the galleries who are not officially on the program, it's the most important weekend of the year. And I think that's the most important thing that we can do for the galleries.
2: Absolutely. There's obviously been a lot of online noise about this vice Weisswurst campaign, and they claim that you have um, 45 galleries, and out of those, 15 are showing female artists, that there's a reduction in the amount of female artists. I'm just asking, do you think it's fair, these allegations they're making against
4: Gallery Weekend? Well, I think we have 16 galleries, but that doesn't make such a a difference, um, that show female artists. In recent years, we always had almost 50% female artists. We were all, mostly at 40%, so I counted all the last years. It's a very extremely important discussion that's led here. Um, I'm I'm totally um, aware of that, and, and we are discussing a lot of these things internally, but Gallery Weekend is an umbrella um, brand, and I'm inviting, or we are inviting the galleries to participate, and then they Send me the artist names so every year in December and January I count how many female artists are coming in how many male artists are coming in and unfortunately this year we were at only 30% female artists which is um, a, a list of artists that's coming together by chance it's not curated and I um, I cannot really prescribe the the galleries what to bring. Um, They are already asking their artists now if they want to join Gallery Weekend um, next year. So again, it will be a thing coming together totally by chance. But of course, we have an internal discussion and we've all discussed this a lot last weekend, um, what we can do and how we can... uh, um, do something for this uh, development that it goes uh, that we present more female artists next year.
2: I think that certainly what I get from reading about this mm. is that Berlin has changed so much since Gallery Weekend began. It's almost a different city in many ways in terms of the diversity of the population, uh, the amount of people coming into the city, and like you know, like these campaigners are saying, they feel an event such as this doesn't address that. But you have a very good point in the sense that it's an umbrella organization you're merely reflecting what the galleries bring to you so in a sense we're looking at a long history here. this is not just a, a snap decision
4: absolutely and um, I think if you analyze the list, what I find really interesting is that the the old established artists are mostly male and the young Artists that present very interesting shows this year are mostly female. So, if you look at this list, you know, and then you see like Jana Euler, Frida Turanzo Jäger, Rafaela Vogel, and and women like this. I think they're really um, they're really coming on. And uh, so, I'm pretty sure that in five and ten or ten to ten years, those lists will look totally. Different, even if they're not curated. If they're curated, they look totally different anywhere. Every time we create something, like at Art Berlin, the Salon, or the Talk program, of course it's mostly female artists when we create something because we are totally aware of this discussion. And most of my friends are female artists, so I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm well taken care of this. But in the case of Gallery Weekend, it's it's not curated, and we have to see what time does. And therefore I think the discussion has been helpful and interesting and it will, I'm very sure, influence in some way or the other also the decision of the galleries for next year.
2: Would you be open to inviting these people behind the campaign to maybe meet with you, have a dialogue, discuss ways in which their concerns can be addressed within the context of the gallery weekend?
4: Well, I mean, I've thought about different uh, things and I talked to a lot of um, female but also male artists, friends of, of what uh, can be done in the past days. There have been a lot of discussions. Maybe um, we uh, start discussion rounds, maybe we could do something at the art fair. I mean, this is something I still have to think about. The discussion I on Facebook I didn't really like so much because every time you participate in there... Um, you don't have a chance. You know, it's it's for me. This is not a productive way of discussing. There has been so much bullying on Facebook that I'm not really participating there. But of course, I'm always open for things like this. And as I said, I'm discussing this with a lot of friends right now.
2: Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for you. making time today when you must be absolutely exhausted. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I am.
0: Bernard Vernet's exhibition Indeterminacy is at Blaine Southern in Berlin until the 22nd of June. And that's it for this week. Please subscribe if you haven't already and if you're enjoying the podcast we'd be grateful if you could give us a rating or a review on iTunes because it helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and the art newspaper is on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook of course. If you'd like to read more from the art newspaper then why not subscribe to our daily newsletter to keep in touch with all the latest developments in the art world. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Ralph, to Arsalan, Micah and Bernard, and to you for listening. Join us next week for our Venice special, but until then, thanks for listening. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.